Thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church Podcast. Here at Velocity, we love to hear about how lives are changed. And if that's you, let us know and send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Now enjoy today's message. If you do have your Bible with you, I want you to follow along with me. This is our theme verse for the series, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And what we're going to look at today is very, very practical. It's going to help you. It's going to help a lot of people. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, are you there? If you're there, say, I'm there. And if you're not there, we'll put the words on the screen so you can follow along just like everybody else. I'm reading from the expanded Bible translation. Paul's writing here. He says, do not be shaped by this world. Instead, be changed within by a new way of thinking, or changing the way you think is another way to put it. Then you'll be able to decide what God wants for you. You will know what is good and pleasing to him and what is perfect. So if you've ever been confused about what God wants for you, if you've ever wondered why you keep dealing with the same problems, then this message is for you. God's gonna speak to you through it. You ready for this? All right, well, let's go ahead. I wanna give you the title of my message because it is the one thing I wanna say to you today. If you're taking notes, you wanna write this down. I'm calling this sermon, It's the Thought That Counts. It's the Thought That Counts. And I need you to help me preach this. I need you to punch somebody in the shoulder sitting next to you and tell them it's the thought that counts. Will you do that for me? Sometimes people just need a good punch. I see some people that did not get hit. You need to hit your neighbor. You better hit them in church. All right. Hey, well, it's always my custom to pray. I would ask that you bow your head. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you that you have breathed on this, and I'm asking you to breathe on it. Lord, let your word go forth. I know it's your word that changes us. Not my ideas, not my opinions, but it's your word. So, Lord, I thank you for it. I believe you'll do it again. And everybody who agrees with this can say in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, how many of you are afraid of bugs? Anybody who'd be honest in church say, I'm afraid of bugs? Or we'll just back it up a little bit and say, I am strongly disgusted by bugs. And you just, let me see your hand. Just put it up proud. Let the world know you're here. This is your moment your moment in church. My wife has an irrational fear of bugs. Irrational. I say irrational because the way she responds, you would think that she has some deep emotional childhood wound that she has encountered and needs years of therapy for. But the truth is, it's irrational. For example, she has this very, very strong irrational fear of bees. Can I tell you, she has never once been stung by a bee. Not once. It's not like she stepped on a beehive. It's not like she's allergic to it. I could understand that. She's never been stung by it. The worst thing she has ever been bit by is a mosquito. Okay? And she's afraid of bees. I pray to God that you are never in the car with her when she sees a bee. The last time I was driving and there was a bee in the car, I thought I ran over a kitten because of the screams. She, she was freaking out. She's so deathly afraid of bugs. I mean, we um, 
first thing we did when we moved into our house was we sprayed for bugs. She wants nothing to do with this, any kind of bug, you know, crickets, spiders, ladybugs, I mean, anything. She doesn't want anything to do with it. But of all the bugs that she doesn't like, I think probably the biggest one she has an aversion to is lice. Lice. Now, can I just tell you, I, I need to give a disclaimer here. She's never had lice. I've never had lice. Our kids have never. There is nobody in our family tree in the history of our family who's had lice. And yet, she freaks out. Uh, we have this little routine our kids go through in, in the morning, you know, like they'll brush their teeth, wash their face, put their clothes on. And she's got this like lice hairspray, anti-lice spray that she puts on them every morning. My kids think this is a normal part of getting ready. You brush your teeth, you wash your face, put your clothes on, don't forget the lice spray. Just in case there happens to be any lice in the vicinity of Lawrence, Kansas, my kids don't have to worry about it. This is a true story. One time, there was an email that went out from the school that there was a lice, people had lice at school. She stopped what she was doing, went to school, pulled our kids out of school, and showered them with lice spray. <laughs> this is the truth. Will you pray? For, can we just stretch our hand out towards her right now? <laughs> pray for her. But, you know, as bad as those bugs are, there's a more dangerous bug I want to tell you about. More dangerous than the lice in our hair are the lies in our head. I'm going full on with the dad jokes today. I got my dad's shirt on. It's the lies in our head. Those are the bugs that we need to worry about. It's these negative thoughts we entertain in our brain that are contrary to God's word. And what we see in Romans and what we need to learn from Romans is that you can spend your whole life trying to fix everything around you and never realize that the place you're getting sabotaged is from within. In fact, if I was going to summarize the essence of what Paul is saying to the Jewish believers in Rome, it would be this. You don't, try, you don't change your life by trying to change your life. You change your life by changing your mind. You don't change your life by trying to change your life. You have to change your life by changing your way of thinking. Instead of focusing on the external operations of my life, I need to focus on the internal conditions of my mind. Now what's interesting about the book of Romans is that it's written to people who are already Christians. These are people who trusted in Jesus. A little bit about the city of Rome would have been much like Lawrence. It was an affluent city. It was an educated city. Many people there had very progressive ideas and thoughts about life. It was a very influential city. And Paul is saying this to people who have already accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and are doing their very best to live out the principles of Jesus. And it's to these people that Paul says, don't be shaped by the world. Don't be shaped by the culture of Rome. Don't be shaped by the pattern that you see. Meaning, 
that it's possible to be a Christian and still not experience complete and total transformation. It's possible to have trusted in Jesus for your salvation and still be dealing with old ways of thinking. It's possible to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and still think about money the same way. It's possible to know Jesus and still want to deal with relationships the same way. Get revenge when somebody wrongs you. Just because you're saved doesn't mean everything changes. Now, the theological term for this is sanctification. In fact, that is the essence of what this book of Romans is about. Sanctification. I realize it's a big theological word, but understand that, I told you we're going to get good doctrine today, but understand that Paul didn't write his profound doctrinal sections of scripture to theologians. Romans is considered Paul's crowning work. But Paul didn't write it to a bunch of theologians, to a bunch of scholars. He wrote it to everyday common people. He wrote it to business owners. He wrote it to self-employed people. He wrote it to workers. He wrote it to soldiers. He wrote it to housewives. He wrote it to students. He wrote it to people like you, and he wrote it to people like me. And the reason he wrote it is to help us understand and help us know how to live our daily lives in a way that pleases God. That, in essence, is what sanctification is. Sanctification is this ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ. Becoming more like Christ in the way you think, becoming more like Christ in the way you speak, becoming more like Christ in the way that you act. Salvation happens in a moment. Sanctification takes some time. And the reason it takes some time is because a lot of us are really comfortable with our old ways of thinking. Now, I say comfortable, but maybe I should say we're comforted by our old ways of thinking. In fact, maybe we shouldn't call this series Brain Bugs. Maybe we should call it Bed Bugs because we like to cuddle up with these thoughts. We'd rather stay warm with the wrong thoughts than have to get out from under the covers and change our way of thinking. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, my daughter, Pippa, she's three years old. She's been sick recently. She's been congested. And uh, I've been holding her a lot because I'm a good dad. And, uh, she's been sick. And, you know, it's sad, but it's also kind of cute because she's got this raspy three-year-old voice. And, like, I'll be holding her, and then I'll put her down. She's like, Dada, Dada, I want you. And I'm like, Pippa, you sound a lot like Rose from the Titanic when Jack was drowning. You remember that? Jack, Jack, come back. Come back, Dada. And you know, it's cute. It really is cute. But no matter how much I like it or how cute it is, it's not helpful. It's harmful. And a lot of us, we think that, you know, these thoughts, well, it's cute, it's just who I am. Or we say, I'd like to change the way I think. I, I'd, 
like to be free from these automatic negative thoughts, but the truth is we become dependent on them for companionship. We say that we'd like God to break the cycle of our self-pity, but the truth is we don't know how to deal with disappointment unless we feel sorry for ourselves. And so the problem with Paul's words here is that they're really annoying. I mean, they are. They're annoying because they tell you how much responsibility you have in changing your life. The responsibility rests with you. I wish I could just pray a prayer and have God free me from some old thinking. That'd be nice. I wish changing my thinking happened the same way salvation happened. But transformation doesn't happen just because you pray a prayer. Transformation doesn't happen just because you come to church. Transformation is not automatic. The negative thoughts, those are automatic. But changing your thinking, no, that's something you have to do, something you're responsible for. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have had to write to the believers in Rome, hey, be changed from within by changing the way that you think. I wish it happened that way, but it doesn't. Otherwise, you could just, hey, just be patient. It'll happen. Just, you know, like you just accepted Jesus. It's just going to take some time. It happens eventually. No, you have to do something about it. It's your responsibility. In fact, where he says change the way you think, in the Greek, it could literally be translated by a renovation of the mind. A renovation. I've never seen a renovation happen in under an hour. Have you? If you're going to do a renovation, you are going to have to knock down some walls, tear up some floor, take out those cabinets. You're going to have to demolish some of those arguments that you've been holding on to, those ways of thinking that have exalted themselves against the truth of God's word. Now, what's fascinating to me about this truth where God says, change your ways by changing your thoughts is that this was written centuries before modern science knew how this worked. Can I just take you on a little side journey, talk about science for a minute? Now, you might not realize this, but when you have a thought, when the synapses in your brain fire off, the neurons in your brain link together to create something called a neural pathway. This is science. When you have a thought, these, neural, these neurons link together to have a neural pathway. Now, neural pathways, you've got to think of it, it's a lot like a dirt road. First time you go someplace, you kind of knock over those weeds and you got a little dirt path. Well, the more your thoughts go back and forth, that dirt road turns into a freeway. And now it's really easy, not just for one thought, but for all those thoughts that travel that direction, those negative thoughts to go back and forth. This is the way it works. So when Paul says, change your thinking to change your ways, you are literally being transformed by your thoughts from the inside out. You are a product of the way that you think. You're not just the way that you are. You're a product of the way you thought up until this point. So when you say, no, it's just the way I am. No, it's just the way you thought up until this point. 
Well, it doesn't matter how I think. No, it matters a lot because to change the way you are, you have to change the way you think. And the reason you're living at the level that you're living at is because you spend all of your time thinking about all the problems that the world has to offer. And Paul says there's a better way. In fact, there's only one way. So you've got to be changed from within. You change your thinking, you change your life. And he says once you do that, then you'll be able to decide what God wants for you. You'll know what is good and pleasing to him and what is perfect. See, this is the reason some of us don't know what God wants for us. It's the reason we're so confused about the will of God for our life. It's because we're not even in a position to know what God wants because our thinking is so messed up. It's the reason some of you have a hard time making decisions and you're so stressed out about it because you're not even in a position because you've never taken time to align your thinking with God's word. But when you begin to see as God sees, when you begin to understand the world the way God sees the world, you begin to see your relationships the way God sees relationships. You begin to see family the way God sees family. You begin to see marriage the way God sees marriage. You begin to see money the way God sees money. You begin to look at opportunities the way God sees opportunities. Or you view time the way God looks at time. When you begin to see as God sees, well, then you're more inclined to do as God says. Now, if you've been swarmed by the brain bugs, I want you to take heart and take courage because negative thoughts don't disqualify you from doing the will of God. In fact, anybody who wants to live according to God's word, anybody who wants to live a life that is pleasing to God, anybody that wants to do God's will or be used by God or do great things for anybody in that category is going to encounter brain bugs. Now, I did some research in preparing for the sermon. I was reading about the different people that God has used and different ways that God has used them. I started reading quotes, and I was reading quotes by Charles Spurgeon. I was reading things that Billy Graham had said. I was reading lyrics by Drake. Just different people <laughs> familiar with God's plan. And... Uh, and in reading, I came across something that Mother Teresa wrote. I don't know what you think about Mother Teresa, but there's probably few people who would argue that she lived God's will for her life and like almost nobody else. If you don't know much about her, I mean, she lived in a lot of poverty. She had a lot of physical struggle. And one thing about Mother Teresa is she wrote a lot. She would journal. She would write prayers out, write out confessions, um, chronicle her thoughts and feelings and when you read these things you see a lot of the suffering that she experienced but not just the physical suffering you also see the internal struggles she had and I want to read something to you that she wrote it was a letter to Jesus on September 3rd 1959 this is what she said from my childhood you've called me kept me for your own and now when we both have taken the same road now, Jesus, I go the wrong way. They say people in hell suffer eternal pain because of the loss of God. They'd go through all that suffering if they just had a little hope of possessing God. In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, 
God not being God, of God not really existing. Jesus, please forgive my blasphemies. I've been told to write everything. That darkness surrounds me on all sides. I can't lift my soul to God. No light or inspiration enters my soul. I speak of love for souls, of tender love for God. The words pass through my lips, and I long with a deep longing to believe in them. I beg of you only one thing. Please do not take the trouble to return soon. I'm ready to wait for you for all eternity. I don't want you to think that this was the theme of all of her writings, but I want to use this to illustrate something to you. Because most of us think that the people that God uses never deal with discouragement, never deal with doubt, never deal with insecurity, never struggle with their confidence. And the reason we feel that way is because we're comparing how we feel on the inside with the image that everybody else projects on the outside. And because they never deal with discouragement or I never see it, well, that's why God can use them and that's why God can't use somebody like me. And maybe even the problem is, some of you hear me read what Mother Teresa wrote, and you think, man, if Mother Teresa never got free from the brain bugs, what hope is there for me? But I would tell you another way to look at it is the fact that if Mother Teresa still had to deal with brain bugs and yet was able to accomplish God's will for her life, then you can too. If she was able to deal with these things and still do what God had called her to do, you can too. But we don't just have to look at Mother Teresa. We can actually look at Paul. Just going back to Paul, I mean, Paul is the guy who wrote, don't be shaped by the world, be changed by your thinking. Now, if you don't know much about Paul, just a real quick bio. Paul planted churches all over the known world, raised up leaders. He'd write letters to churches to encourage them, help them grow. Side note, 13 of those letters made their way into the New Testament. How many of you know if on your resume you have wrote 13 letters that are in the New Testament, that's a pretty good resume. I like learning from Paul. He's a successful guy. It'd be easy to think with all Paul's success and all that he did, he just went from success to success. In fact, if you thought that, you wouldn't be the only one. There were these people called super apostles. It's kind of a weird name. That's what they were called. And they criticized Paul. They're like, Paul, you're just in it for the money. You're not really an apostle. You're just doing it for the fame. You're just doing it to prop yourself up. You're not a real apostle. And they compare their honors and their accolades to Paul's. And when they were doing this, Paul got wind of it. He's like, oh, you wanna have a list? You wanna compare? All right, I'll give you a comparison. And this is what he said. He says, this is a silly game, but okay, look at this list. I've worked harder than any of them. I've served more prison sentences. I've been beaten times without number. I've faced death again and again. I've been beaten the regulation 39 stripes by the Jews five times. I've been beaten with rods three times. I've been stoned once. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been 24 hours in the open sea. In my travels, I've been in constant danger from rivers and floods, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from pagans. I've faced danger in city streets, danger in the desert, danger on the high seas, danger among false Christians. I've known exhaustion, pain, long vigils, hunger and thirst, going without meals, cold and a lack of clothing. Apart from all external trials, I have the daily burden of responsibility for all the churches." So Paul didn't just go from success to success. 
It was more like struggle to struggle. He didn't often talk about it, but he had his fair share of hardship. The thing that stuck out to me is when he says, I've served more prison sentences, because some scholars say that he may have spent as much as six years in prison during his ministry. That's a long time to spend in jail. And this wasn't like just house arrest. Like some of these cells were dark, dingy, cold, cramped. They smelled horrible because of the lack of toilets. There was a lack of food. There was a lack of water. Sleeping was not pleasant. Neither were the waking hours. A lot of prisoners would request a speedy death or just commit suicide because it was so bad. Why do I bring that up? Because in Acts chapter 26, which is what I want to get to, something has happened to Paul. Now, prior to this, he'd gone in to worship in the temple, and some Jews wrongly accused him of desecrating the temple. They formed a mob, were ready to kill him, but instead of killing him, they threw him in prison. Bear in mind, he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. For two years, he's in prison. When he finally gets the chance to make a statement, to make his defense, he's brought before King Agrippa, and I want to read this to you in Acts 26. It says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand, answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. What? Paul, you've, you've just spent two years in prison, wrongly accused. This is your first opportunity to say your piece. And you think yourself happy? Let's be honest, this is not what most of us would say. Most of us would be like, I think somebody better get ready to apologize. I think somebody needs to get ready because I'm about to counter sue you. I think I'm a victim of injustice here. I, I, I think... Y'all ain't ready for what I have to say. I think myself mad. Maybe if we're halfway saved, we'd say, all right, I think I'm unlucky. I think this is unfortunate. In fact, one translation says, I consider myself fortunate that I get to speak to you today. That's not what most of us would say. How could he, in the moment where he's being unjustly tried, have such a positive tone? Well, it's because Paul learned what you and I need to learn, that you don't have to think about everything you feel, but you will feel everything you think about. Let me just say that again for the people in the back. You don't have to think about everything you feel, but you will feel everything that you think about. He says, yeah, I think myself happy. And then he goes on to give his testimony, share the gospel with King Agrippa. But you know that's not what most of us would do. Most of us are looking for an opportunity to make sure people know how hard our life is. Most of us would rather tell people why our lives are falling apart than look for a reason to keep it together. And maybe... You don't post anything publicly, but maybe you just have this conversation in your mind. I don't know what the conversation is for you. Maybe it's a conversation of discouragement. Nobody cares about me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. 
This is so unfair. Nobody else has to go through this. You know, I give and I give and I give. All they want to do is take. I've got the gift of giving. They've got the gift of taking. No, nobody knows. Discouragement. Maybe it's discontentment. I wish my life was different. I wish I wasn't in this situation. I wish I had a boyfriend. I wish I had a girlfriend. I wish I was married. I wish I had kids. I, I wish. Maybe it's a conversation of fear. And I might lose my job. I might be without a place to live. I'm worried about my kids. All the time it's bad news on the television. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't feel safe myself. It's just critical, just always judgmental, always critical, always negative. Things are never right, never good enough. This kind of conversation, I call it the dialogue of destiny. Because the dialogue that I engage in determines the destiny that I experience. In fact, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, she's a cognitive neuroscientist. I read a lot of her stuff preparing for this message. She said this. She said, be careful how you talk about certain issues in your life because it will affect how you recover. For example, don't say my anxiety or my panic attacks. As you make these a part of your identity and see them as just a flawed part of who you are, this mindset will keep you locked in and keep you from finding healing. These are not who you are. They are feelings and signals that need to be addressed and dealt with. See, just because you think something doesn't make it true, but it does make it real. It makes it real because you're building these connections, these neural pathways, you're building this up in your mind. That's why negative thoughts do more than just keep you from enjoying life. These ants will derail your destiny. Because lies create limitation. And if you believe the lies, you'll never be who God created you to be. When lies go unconfronted, callings go unfulfilled. And you know what? Maybe these lies in our head really are more like the lies in our hair than, than I originally thought. Because they don't just affect you. They affect everybody around you that you're connected with. You can't be the mom you're called to be. You can't be the dad you're called to be. You can't be the spouse, the husband or the wife, the boss, the leader, the teammate. You can't be who you're called to be to other people because of these lies that you're beginning to believe. And a lot of us aren't fulfilling our calling because we're having wrong conversations in our mind. So what do you do? Well, that's what we're gonna talk about in this series. That's why you gotta come back next week. But you do have to start with your thinking because you won't be automatically negative when you're being intentionally positive. So Paul, 
he gives us some instruction. And I want to leave you with this because while he was wrongfully imprisoned, he wrote down these words to a church in Philippi. He said, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. You know, maybe that's why Paul could say to King Agrippa, I think myself happy because he'd been putting it into practice. He'd been practicing that. So that's your assignment this week. Rather than praying to God to change your situation, rather than going to God and asking God to do something for you, what if you just ask God not to change your situation, but to change your thinking, to change your mind, to change your perspective? What if you ask God that this week? Because it's the thought that counts.